Good morning. Got quiet all of a sudden. <laughs> He's not here, so I can say it. Doesn't Chance Wyckoff rock? Isn't he amazing? Well, yeah. <laughs> Isn't he great? We are delighted you're here. Alice was beginning to get very tired of sitting by her sister on the bank and having nothing to do. Once or twice she peeked into the book her sister was reading, but it had no pictures in it. What's the use of a book, thought Alice, without pictures? Such are the opening lines of Lewis Carroll's children's classic, Alice in Wonderland. And, you know, I think it's not just kids who need or require pictures to engage their attention. Uh, I think adults do too a lot of times. I think that's one of the reasons why USA Today is one of the most successful papers ever, and Gannett Publishing makes no secret of the fact that they rely heavily on pictures to sell newspapers. But they're not alone, are they? I mean, every newspaper has photographers, every publishing house has artists and illustrators. Um, there are more adults who go to the movies than to Jefferson County Library. Uh, more adults watch television than listen to radio. We like pictures. Pictures engage us. And I think one of the reasons uh, why the Bible, even though it is the all-time number one bestseller, one of the reasons why so few adults actually read it is because it's a book without pictures. We have trouble with that, don't we? We're coming up on that time of year, uh, Easter, when the television will have uh, multiple selections of movies about the life of Jesus Christ. I think probably the most popular one over the last 20 or so years is uh, The Greatest Story Ever Told. But my personal favorite, and it isn't directly about the life of Christ, it's really about a man named Ben-Hur, uh, played by Charlton Heston, which I'm sure you guys are aware. Uh, and. I like that movie particularly because throughout the movie, on multiple occasions, Ben-Hur encounters this itinerant Jewish preacher, but you never get to see his face. All you ever see is the back of his head or from the side. You never see his face. It was over 50 years ago, but back then I think even Hollywood had some reverence for the person of Jesus Christ. And as we said last week, there is an essential, incomprehensible mystery about the God of the Bible. And maybe without realizing it, Hollywood in that instance uh, did some justice, not only to the mystery of God, but to the mystery of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Father, we just thank you for everyone who's come this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for life and breath. We ask you to help us to set aside the cares of this world for this short time we have and to, to turn our eyes upon Jesus. Help us, Lord, to be different people because we came. Amen. We looked last week at uh, the first half of Psalm 139. Uh, remember we said, if you were here last week, that Psalm 139 breaks down beautifully into uh, four sections of six verses each. The first section, uh, the omniscience of God. 
He knows everything, verses 1 through 6. The second session, the omni, second section, the omnipresence of God, he's everywhere, verses uh, 7 through 12. And then thirdly, the omnipotence, the omnipotence of God. He's all-powerful, verses 13 through 18. And then the final section, uh, which is man's response to all of this uh, in verses 19 through 24. Last week, we looked at the omniscience of God. He knows everything. And the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere. And this week, we want to look at the second two sections. The omnipotence of God first, he's all-powerful, and man's, or specifically here, David's reaction to that in verses 18 through 24. First, the omnipotence of God. Notice, uh, let's pick it up in verse 13, verses 13 and 14. For you, and and the you there is emphatic, for you, Lord, formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. Lord, you formed my inward parts. When we think of the human race multiplying, we think primarily, don't we, of human procreation. And obviously, that's an essential part of it. But what David would have us know here is that even though human procreation is essential in the survival of the human race, that God is sovereign even over that. Even over the areas that we think we control, God has a hand in all of it. It it kind of reminds me of one of my favorite Proverbs, Proverbs 16 and verse 33. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from God the Lord. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. If we were going to paraphrase that, we might say it this way. People roll the dice, but God decides how they fall. (laughs) Human procreation is essential, but that doesn't take God out of the equation. He's still sovereign even over that part of it as well. You have covered me, says David. And he's saying there, Lord, you're the one who wove me together. You created me. We talked last week about uh, Michelangelo and the tremendous work of art that he did on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Michelangelo painted that work of art, that, that classic work of art, between 1509 and 1512. It took him three years to create his masterpiece on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. And I think we would all agree, as we said last week, that it is a masterpiece. It's a classic. And it took him three years. But think of the miracle. Think of the masterpiece, as we're literally called in the womb. Think of the masterpiece that God creates in the womb in just nine months. Lord, you wove me together. You covered me in my mother's womb. And here David is talking about uh, his existence, prenatal existence, we might call it. And and let's face it, David is rather ignorant uh, in terms of uh, what what prenatal uh, knowledge that we have today in the 21st century. David didn't know anything uh, about gestation. He knew nothing about DNA. He knew nothing about chromosomes or blood type. He didn't know any of that. But he knew enough to say, Lord, it's you who were sovereign over it all. You wove me together. You created me. I am fearfully 
and wonderfully made. Remember the words of the bard in Hamlet? What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculties. In form and moving. How inexpressible and brilliant. In action, how like an angel. I think, I think David would agree. As a matter of fact, he says here that, Lord, I am an awesome wonder. In the version I have up there, it actually says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. But in some of your versions, it will say, I am an awesome wonder. I'm an incredible creation. And I'm your creation, Lord. You formed me. You wove me together in my mother's womb. And then notice verse 15. He says, My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. That's a little problematic for us. Um, that expression, the lowest parts of the earth, believe it or not, is a Hebrew metaphor for the womb. It's one that we have trouble connecting with. But think of it this way. In the Hebrew mind, they realized, didn't they, that God created Adam from the earth, right? And being a largely agrarian society, they knew that life in general sprung forth from the earth. So it became sort of a, uh, a romantic metaphor to speak of the womb as the depths of the earth. I know, it doesn't connect with us, does it? It's just... I don't know why it doesn't work. It worked for them. So you formed me, Lord, in the lowest parts of the earth. And then notice what else David says. And my frame was not hidden from you. And the frame there, many, many commentators believe, refers to our skeletal system, to our bones. Lord, my frame was not hidden from you. And then he says, when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought, and that expression skillfully wrought literally means to embroider or to knit. And we picture the lines, don't we? And a lot of commentators say, just as the frame refers to the bones, the embroidering, the knitting refers to our circulatory system, to arteries, to veins, capillaries. David has a picture of it all as God reveals it to him. Verse 16, just the first line. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And this obviously is a reference to the embryonic stage. Lord, no one could see me. I was the size of a peanut, but you saw me. Lord, even my mother didn't know I existed yet, but you knew I existed. You knew I was there. Second half of verse 16. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And again, some of us have a problem with that here because it speaks to something that we often refer to as predestination, and we don't like that word. But the fact is, David is affirming, Lord, every word... Every thought that I have, you know it because you're omniscient. Every place that I go, everywhere that I am, you know where I am because you're omnipresent. 
And on top of that, Lord, you fashioned, you knew about, you had a hand in my personality, my height, my weight, my likes, my dislikes, my bruises, my broken bones, my adolescent dreams, my adult accomplishments and failures. Lord, you had a hand in all of it. And that, that smacks to us of this thing called predestination. And we have a trouble with that. We have trouble with that a lot of times, don't we? Lord, you know, and you had a hand in it all, even right up to and including the day and the hour of my death. All the days allotted to me were fashioned by you before even one of them came to pass. And somebody says, whatever happened to free will? What am I, just some kind of a robot? Uh, some kind of a pawn uh, to be moved around on the chessboard of life by, by some intrusive and dictatorial God? Is that all I am? That's not the way David sees it. David sees all that and says, I praise you. I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. David's not at all offended by the sovereignty of God thing. Can I suggest to you why I think David's not offended. This is important. As Charles Sandy would say, watch this now. David understands that all of us are free and responsible agents who make real choices, real decisions every day of our lives and those choices, those decisions affect the quality, the direction, and the outcome of our lives. And more than that, at the end of our lives, we will be held accountable for those choices and decisions by God. So on the one hand, God is absolutely sovereign over the affairs of men. On the other hand, we are free, responsible agents who make choices every day from a genuine array of potential possibilities. And those choices affect the quality, the direction, and the outcome of our lives. And we will be held accountable for those things. God is sovereign on the one hand. We are free and responsible agents on the other hand. And somebody says, that's contradictory. No, no, I would suggest to you that's a paradox. Theologians would call it an antinomy. Something that on the face of it, or two things that on the face of it, appear to contradict each other, but in reality they are both true. And I believe with all my heart, and I believe with what David is saying here, it's our responsibility as the free responsible agents to hold those two truths in tension with one another. And when we do, when we do, we come up not only with a true and biblical anthropology, but also with a true and biblical theology proper. Study of God, understanding of God. And we get to discover, as accurately as I think it's possible, the wonderful, essential, 
incomprehensible mystery of who God is. Verse 17. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God. Can I suggest to you that a, that a more helpful uh, translation of that would be, how precious are your thoughts toward me, O God. And, and in context, David, is, David begins in his mind with those thoughts toward him from God being the thoughts that that created his frame, that knit his circulatory system together, that nurtured him through his time in the womb. But it doesn't end there. God is thinking thoughts toward us every day. Um, I know that's probably not clear yet. I'm, I, I was battling with this early this morning <laughs> as the sun was coming up. And... Um, I didn't want to get too far afield, too far out in the bushes, because I might get lost. But I wanted to try to make it clear. And what came to my mind was this. Psalm, another Psalm of David, Psalm 34 and verse 7 says this. David says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And a lot of times we read that and people say, see, if you're walking with God, if you're in fellowship with him, God will give you what you want. No, no. Read the verse again and think carefully. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. One of my seminary professors used to say that the great challenge of sanctification for Christians is learning to think theocentrically. And all theocentrically means is God's thoughts. Learning to think God's thoughts after him. Because as we walk with him in close fellowship and we learn to think God's thoughts after him, God's thoughts, God's plans toward us become our thoughts, our plans. And we begin to walk in closer fellowship and communion with him. Making sense, or am I getting lost in the weeds? Precious, Lord, are your thoughts toward me. How great is the sum of them. And even, I would say this, even in our prayer lives, we often think, if you ask someone, why do you pray? Some people, a lot of people would say, to get answers to my prayer, to get what I want. Partially, yeah, but I don't think primarily. Think about this. Prayer primarily should not be us trying to get God in on what we want and what we're doing. Prayer should be primarily God getting us in on what he wants and what he's doing. How precious, Lord, are your thoughts toward me. And they're new every single day. 
So that's the omnipotence of God, the all-powerful God. Lastly, the last section, let's look at verses 9 through 22. Oh, and there's a very sudden shift here, by the way. Some uh, commentators have even suggested that there's a redaction involved here, that this is parts of two writings that were put together, but I think that's crazy. There's no reason to think that. There's a very logical uh, reason for why David does this. Notice what he says, beginning in verse 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. Now, think for a minute. Some, some commentators have suggested, and I think there's, this is a good possibility, that at the end of verse 18, when David says, and when I awake, I'm still with you. In other words, that basically what's happened in verses 1 through 18 is God revealing himself to David while he slept. And that may well be. That may well be. Or these could be thoughts that, that David had in his morning quiet time with God. But whichever one is true, what actually happens here is suddenly David comes out of it and realizes it's time to face the real world. <laughs> it's, it's time to put it all. It's great meditating on who God is and his, and his person and character. But at some point, we got to get out into the world and live it. Time to face a new day. Time to choose my loyalties. Time to decide as I walk out the door, am I going to live as the world lives or am I going to live as God wants me to live? Let's face it, it's easy, relatively easy, isn't it, to be a Christian in church on Sunday. We're surrounded by other Christians. It would be unchristian not to be Christian. It's rather easy, but to do it out in the world day in and day out, to not cave in, to have the courage to be different, however you want to put it, to pay the cost of discipleship. And don't be mistaken, there's always a cost to discipleship. Salvation is absolutely free. Discipleship is always costly. It always involves paying the price. And for David... That coming out of it and going out and facing the day is going to be done in his mind in strict adherence and loyalty to the God who created him and who loves him and who David has learned in his walk to love back. And David's loyalty comes before anything. It comes before his personal popularity. It even comes, as, those, as you will remember in, in 1 and 2 Samuel, before his own personal safety. He was going to live for the Lord even if he had to endure the, the maniacal hatred of Saul who constantly wanted to kill him. And when David prays this sort of uh, imprecatory prayer, these imprecatory words toward the enemies of God, he's not saying, I want, them, I want their soul to be lost. I want them to be eternally lost. That's not what he's saying. David has here... A, a sort of horizontal focus. He's focusing on this world. He recognizes that, that God's intent for the world is that it should be as it was in the garden before Adam and Eve sinned. 
right? That's how God wants the world to be. That's what Jesus said in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. David wants God's will to be done on the earth. He's trying for his part to make that happen, but he recognizes that there are evil people in the world who, will always, who are and will, may always be opposed to the plans and purposes of God, and since they're opposed to the plans and purposes of God, David is opposed to them. And he says, I count them to my, I count them my enemies, Lord, because they're your enemies. I hate them because they hate you. And I want to do anything I can so that your kingdom will come on the earth as it is in heaven. So David says, I belong to and I serve the God who knows me, who never leaves me, who knit me together in my mother's womb, who fashioned all of my days. I do not rebel against his sovereignty. As a free and responsible agent, I welcome it. I embrace it and I worship him for it. That's David's reaction to the omniscience of God, the omnipresence of God, and the omnipotence of God. What's your reaction? What's my reaction? As we move toward the end of part four here, I wanted to draw some kind of application. And I got thinking about the social implications from studying Psalm 139. In, in recent decades, Psalm 139 has come into uh, the discussion about human life. Uh, specifically, it's come into the discussion about when is a human life a human life and entitled to all of the benefits and protections thereof. Uh, maybe to say it in a way that we are more familiar with, when does an embryo cease to become just part of a woman's body and instead become a human being with all of the, entitled to all the protections of that status? And I guess looking back over it, um, there have been a number of theories as to when that occurs uh, that are as, as old as the book. The first one, and it's, it's called quickening. I think the mom, most of the moms will know what that is. <laughs> it's called quickening. And basically, Aristotle and a lot of people since him taught that Human life begins, the embryo ceases to become part of the woman's, just part of the woman's body and becomes a human being when it's quickened or when the mother feels the baby move within her. But with advances in prenatal science, we know today that that movement is virtually always going on. It's going on way back to the very beginnings of the embryonic stage. Quickening is merely when the mom becomes aware of that movement. It's always been going on. Quickening is when she becomes aware of it. This, a second theory, and, and much more recent, in recent decades, is called viability. That is, this theory says that 
an embryo becomes a human being when it's viable, that is, when it can effectively live outside of mom's womb. But there's another problem, again, that advancements in prenatal science have brought to that theory, and that is that with those advancements, babies born prematurely are living earlier and earlier. Younger and younger babies are surviving because of those advancements. So the idea of viability uh, is a very ambiguous term. It's not really helpful. And the third one that's been traditionally taught, and it's been taught by some people virtually forever, is that the embryo becomes a viable human being at birth and not before then. Disciplining myself not to say anything about something that just came to my mind. Now, what is David? And I guess the question is, what does David say about these things? Well, I would remind you that speaking under divine inspiration, David traces his beginnings not to a time of quickening, not to a time of viability, and not to birth, but David traces his beginnings to the moment of conception. Lord, you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And as we saw uh, back in verse 15, Lord, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made. NIV says, in the secret place. Lord, from the time I was a peanut size. You were the one, sovereign in, bringing about this entire process of my growth and my assembly, if I could put it that way. So for David, there's no question that human life begins at, at conception. And if that's true, if that's true, and I believe biblically it, it's undeniable that it is, how can we justify the human termination of God's own handiwork? How can we justify the removal of a fetus as if it was a defective appendix or gallbladder? If we are going to draw a conclusion about social ethics here, then in my mind, the conclusion for me, studying Psalm 139 a lot over the last month, is that David says, my life, Lord, began at the moment of conception. You were sovereign even over that. People roll the dice, but God determines how they fall. And you wove my frame together, my circulatory system, my personality, even all the days of my life, right up to and including the hour and day of my death. So the Bible speaks here, guys, with real clarity about the humanity and infinite value of prenatal life. But as we leave this morning, whether we, whether we have learned something about the person of God, theology proper, as I've called it, 
or whether we feel like we've learned something more about social ethics, whatever it is, the challenge for David here is put it into practice. I actually was blaming Ethan for missing a slide, and I missed a slide. Back to verses 23 and 24, the final two verses. David says this as he closes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me, any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. So basically what David is saying, Lord, whatever I take from this, whether it's a greater knowledge of who you are in your person or whether it's a greater knowledge of social ethics and how I should live, whatever it is, it's for naught unless I go out there and put it into practice. So Lord, turn that scan on me. Remember in verse one last week I said, Lord, you have scanned me instead of search. You have scanned me and you know everything about me. Lord, now as I close here, verse 24, scan me again and this time, Introduce me to myself. Show me the results. Show me if there's any hurtful, any wrong, any wicked way in me. And instead of that, help me by your grace to walk in the everlasting way, to go out into the world and to be the person, the man, the woman that you've called me to be. Father, we thank you for your amazing word. Thank you for the testimony of this man that you called a man after your own heart. Lord, may we have the courage that David had and ask you this morning to introduce us in a fresh new way to ourselves. And having received that introduction, help us to go out into the world and live as you would have us live, as free, responsible agents who will one day give an account to the King of kings and Lord of lords. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.